is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. be the most important set of sentences put in a row in human history. I'm, I, I, when I read this paragraph, I think, especially when I have envisioned myself teaching this passage, I think I should take my shoes off and be barefooted before, like Moses before that burning bush. This is holy writ here. This is, this is a passage of scripture that is like none other. It's going to tell us about Jesus. It's going to tell us about the gospel. It's going to say that Jesus is like no other religious leader, that he is preeminent, that he is different in kind, not in degree. And then it's going to say that Jesus brings us, offers us a different gospel, a different salvation, different in kind, not in degree. It is a preeminent salvation that he's offering us to us today. And, and, and before we get too far down the road, I want to make sure that we understand the difference between preeminent and something like prominent or primary. We looked at this last week, but it, it'll be helpful um, to see that because it's going throughout the whole passage. Preeminent means it's, it's, it's all by itself. It's not to be compared with other things. Uh, an engagement ring is a preeminent ring. Okay, it's a different type of ring. It's a different kind of ring. It might not be, for example, the prettiest ring that a person has. It might not be the most expensive. When you buy an engagement ring, it's not an investment. You're not going to sell this later. Uh, at least that's the plan. And so it's, it's a ring of preeminence because it has a preeminent purpose. Let's just say, uh, for the sake of ease, that all, jewelry, the purpose of jewelry is to make something pretty. It's to make something beautiful. 
and that might be true or not with an engagement ring, but the purpose of an engagement ring is, is different in that if, 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 if a man is on his knee and he's proposing and he's offering this ring, he is saying something that's different, and if she receives that ring and puts it on her finger, there is introduced into the relationship a no-complete compete clause. There no, you cannot compete anymore. That's what the ring means. It means you were once, you know, one of the women in my life. You were once my favorite woman. But now with this ring, is you are the only woman in my life. You hear that, Mom? Yeah. No? So am I the only one that has that kind of stuff in the background? No? You're the only woman in my life, honey. And she says, you are the only man, and I want to be preeminent in your life. I used to be primary of your affections, and I want to become preeminent in those. I used to be, you know, uh, prominent in your hierarchy of things, and now I want to be over here. I don't want to compete, okay? It's a no-compete clause that's part of that engagement ring. How is Jesus preeminent, different in kind? Jesus is God. And we see that in verses 15 through 18. We looked at it last week. Um, I'll go through this in review rather quickly because it, it does give us great context. Not everyone was here, but it gives us great context for when we, when we look at the preeminence of Jesus, it's going to lead to the preeminence of the gospel or the salvation that he is offering to us. So when it says that Jesus is preeminent, uh, we, we learned last week that his very nature is preeminent. And Colossians 1 15, it says the Son is in the image of the invisible God. Okay, and the word there, image, is, means the exact likeness, that Jesus is the picture of God. Jesus is not just in his nature preeminent, but he is preeminent in creation. It says in verse uh, 15, he's the firstborn over all creation. And last week we learned firstborn was a figure of speech or actually closer to a title that meant the absolute equivalent or equal in power and dignity as the Father. It goes on, talking about creation, verse 16, that he created all things. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. Jesus created all things. He created all those physical things, and that means he's sovereign over that. He reigns over that. He rules that. Jesus created the invisible things. He's referring probably to angels and demons. He rules that realm. He's sovereign over that realm. He reigns over that realm because he created that. He's the author of that. He's not just the instrument of creation. He's the end of it. He's the destiny of it. Look at, and it says, all things have been created by him and for him. He's the object of creation. All of creation, or let's just put it, you can look at it uh, chronologically. All of history has been has been. The purpose of history is the story of Jesus the Christ, who is culminating in this life, death, resurrection, and final, finally glorification, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All these things, the invisible and the, uh, the visible, are created for this purpose, for this glorification. He is the Alpha and the Omega of all creation. He is the King. He's not a king. He's the king of all kings. And he is sovereign. He rules. He reigns. That's Jesus. That's the, that Jesus' nature. 
That is his preeminence in creation, and he's also preeminent in the new creation. The new creation, that's the church. Verse 18, we found out, was he is the head of the body. That is the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn among the dead. He's the head of the body. Why that title? Because he gives us life, and he rules us. He tells us what to do. It's the, he's the firstborn. He's, he's the beginning of the dead, that, uh, the firstborn of the dead. He's the beginning. And the idea there is that in his resurrection, he was the author of a whole new life, a whole new reality for all of us who follow him. And so, listen, he's preeminent in his nature. He's preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in new creation. So that, so that, so that he himself will come to have preeminence in all things. He himself, Christ alone, only him will have absolute over here, right? Different in kind supremacy over all things. He is not prominent, right? He's not priority. He is preeminent. He does not compete. He doesn't with nature, with creation and new creation. And in our lives, he should have that same status. He is not first with other seconds and thirds chomping at his heels. He is by himself. No competition. That's Jesus' preeminence. Now, today, we look at the second part of the paragraph where it says that this preeminent Jesus Christ, he presents to us a preeminent salvation, a salvation that is not like other methods of salvation. It is not to be compared with others. It is different in kind not in degrees, all right? So what we're going to do now, we're going to look at the passage uh, 19 to 23, and the outline, the logical outline, I move the verses around because the logical outline is easier to follow. The logical outline is the problem, the solution, the results, okay? The problem, the solution, the results. We'll start with the problem. And the Bible says this when it talks about the problem. It says that we cannot save ourselves. And then things are so bad that only God could fix our brokenness. That's what I want you to be hearing in the problem. That's what it says in verse 21. Once we were alienated from God and we were enemies in our minds because of uh, your evil behavior. See, we're alienated and we were enemies. Alienated means uh, the definition is permanently, persistently estranged. Permanently, that was the grammar in that, persistently estranged. Literally, it means that you are owned by uh, another owner. In other words, we are owned by the evil one. That's alienated. We don't belong to him. And then it goes on to say we are enemies in our minds. And what that means is that... In our evaluation of who God is, we did not value him for who he truly is. In other words, we did not give him the value that he deserves as God. We, excuse me, in our our reasoning, we do not uh, make decisions uh, with him in mind. Right, we're enemies in our mind. That means we didn't wake up and live our day and go to bed wondering what, what what is God's will for us? Right, this is before we're followers of Jesus Christ. We're enemies in our mind. We, we made our plans. We uh, had our vision for our life. We chose to, the path that we want to follow, and we either completely ignored the nature of God and, and who he is, or he was 
off in some far horizon, and we didn't give him value. But this is for sure. We wanted him to stay out of our life and don't interfere with it. That's the point. That's what it means to be enemies. And this is, this is where we are, right, in this former state. We are enemies and we are alienated. And we can't, fully, we can't fully appreciate how desperately bad this is for us until you look at where we're supposed to be to have a relationship with God. And so in verse 22, uh, we're, we're going to go fast over the first part, but in verse 22 it says, uh, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through uh, death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusations. That's where we're supposed to be, holy, without blemish, and free from accusations. What does all this kind of mean, this holy blemish? Why is he using those words? I, I think Paul, thoroughly Jewish, his, his concept of understanding uh, um, being with God is going back to Old Testament rituals, right? Uh, especially those in the, in the temple or the tabernacle. And, and here's the issue at hand. This is what we're talking about. This is the subject. It is presentability. It is the ability to be in the presence of God, to be presented to God. Okay? And you can't just go up and enjoy the presence of God, right, if you're not holy, if you have blemishes and you have accusations. And so Paul is reflecting back probably looking back on temple rituals thinking, okay, this holy place inside the temple, this is the place where God dwells. This is his presence. This, in some respects, this is the face of God. And you'll see in books like Leviticus and Numbers, you'll see um, it'll wear you down, uh, the details that a person must endure to enjoy a moment in this holy place. It's extremely comprehensive, and it's holistic because you can't just walk in on the presence of God. And so it'll talk about your body being clean, and you will literally clean your body. And your body, it, it doesn't stop with just cleaning it. You, it has to be whole. It has to be well. So absolutely no blemishes or wounds or any kind of being disfigured cannot qualify. You cannot be presented. It's about presentation. The clothes you wear have to be clean and holy without blemish. And so they had to be clean, but they had to be a certain type of, of fabric. Not any fabric. You can't just pull something out of your closet and expect to be in the presence of God. So your body, your outfits, you, then there were dietary laws. They go on for chapters because, good heavens, you have to eat right, right? Or else you can't be in the presence of God. No yeast in your diet. So, but here's the bigger picture. Why all those laws? This is, we get bogged down if you've read through the Bible. It's Leviticus and Numbers with these laws in the details that we kind of go, wow. But what's the point? Well, and, and this is why Paul's referring to these vocabulary words with this ritual is because the, the external laws and rules were to be a metaphor for internal, metaphysical, soulish things. And so we're all spiritually learning impaired, right? It's hard for us to understand what's happening on, in the, going on in the spiritual world. And so God set up some, many of these rituals to say, okay, well, as it is physically, it is spiritually. And as you have to go through all of these things to enjoy or even endure the presence of a holy God, so it is 
with your soul. You need to have a clean soul, a pure heart, a perfect spirit. That's what it takes to be in the presence of God. This is about the presentation, remember? And, and we are in, in a very difficult uh, place because we are enemies and alienated from God, and this is a long way from where we're supposed to be. This is the part of the gospel I think most people understand. I think most people can grasp the idea that we don't treat God as he should be treated and honor him as God. And then we also understand that we cannot rescue ourselves. We are in way too much debt towards his holiness and our need. And so we have a preeminent Jesus and we need a preeminent salvation a different kind of salvation. And that's why we sang, I need you today. I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you. That's why we sang that. And, and, and listen, we're going to look at the solution now. That was the problem. We're going to look at the solution. But before we look at a single word from this passage, I want you to know, you, I don't want you to know what to look for because you're, what we're looking at is how the preeminence of Jesus Christ is going to be attached to the sacrifice that is needed. I want you to see that Paul is tying together the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is in the very nature of God, and he's attaching that to the only way that we can be reconciled with God. Let me just say it simply. Okay? Jesus had to be God for us to have peace with God. That's what Paul's going to say in these next two verses. This is part of the solution. Let's read them. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Way too much to take it. Let me read it again, okay? For God was pleased to have all, full, all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether in earth or things in heaven, making, by making peace through bl the blood that was shed on the cross. Let's look at this in parts. The first part has to do with his deity. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The word fullness there means completeness. It means, verse 19 is called the most powerful sentence in describing Jesus the Christ as God, as deity. And the reason is, is because verse 19 is a summary of 15 through 18, if you were here last week. It summarized those, all those sentences in this one sentence. The fullness of God dwells in him. And he is serving as a mediator between, you know, God and man. And he has to be God and man to do that. And, and so Jesus comes as the God-man. He is both fully God and fully man. He is man. He is the perfect man. He is the first Adam. And this, this aspect of the gospel, this is what's called the scandal of exclusivity because this part of the gospel says it is not like any other gospel. This part of the gospel says this is a preeminent salvation story because Jesus is different in kind. Here, let me, here's how C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, there is no parallel with Christianity and other religions. If, you had, if you'd gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would say, my son, you still are in a veil of illusion. If you went to Socrates and said, are you Zeus? He would have merely laughed. If you'd gone Mohammed and said, are you Allah? 
he would have torn his clothes, and then he would have cut your head off. If you asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would probably respond by saying, your remarks are not in accordance with the nature of true things, and you are in bad taste. The idea of Jesus being great moral teacher is simply out of the question because he's God, and he's the only religious leader that claims to do that and proves it because of his resurrection. And, and so this is called the scandal of exclusivity, but let me just kind of, before we get too distracted on what's next, right? This exclusivity is not like uh, Willy Wonka, right, in the chocolate factory, Charlie in the chocolate factory, where, you know, Willy Wonka gives out five golden tickets for the whole world. Okay, that's exclusivity. This is, if it's Jesus and, like, I don't know, the heaven factory or whatever, Everyone gets a golden ticket. That's not very exclusive. You just have to trust and believe and have faith in all that it means to make it. Do you, do you see? I don't know what it is exclusive if everyone gets this ticket. But he is exclusive in this. This is the theme. That a preeminent Jesus Christ brings a preeminent type of salvation, and it's a different type in kind. Here's what it says in verse 20. It is through him to re- and through him to reconcile himself all things. It is through him to reconcile to himself all things by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Reconcile. It means change from enemy to friend. That's pretty simple. To himself. He reconciled to himself. God has to reconcile us to him. He's not reconciling him to us. We fled. We sinned. We rebelled. We're the enemies. He's reconciling to himself. He's changing the status. And how is he doing that? It says blood shed on the cross. It's a graphic expression of death. And here's the point that we have such a dire problem that this blood, death on the cross, is the only way to fix it. That this preeminent Jesus would have to go and pay with his life an excruciating death because that's what was owed. So just to be clear, okay, this is not the gospel that that the teachings of Jesus could bring you peace with God. You can't have reconciliation with God by church attendance and Bible study and moral lifestyles. That is not what this passage is saying. It says we have peace and reconciliation through the blood of the preeminent Jesus Christ. Reconcile, it comes from God. It comes from the crucifixion of the only son. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, it says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. When John the Baptist introduces Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And do you know how you become the Lamb of God? Do you know how you take away the sins of the world? You rewind that story back to the original Exodus out of Egypt, the original, the first one. You've seen the movie. I'm, I hope you've read it. Right? You get a, a lamb, a young lamb in the house for a week. Let the kids play with it. Let the kids name it. It has no blemish, no marks. It's perfect. It has no accusations against it. It's a holy lamb. 
And if you just make friends with that lamb and pet that lamb, then you'll survive. No. That lamb must die. And that lamb's blood must be splattered on your door, on the top, on the sides, and drip down at the bottom because it's a sign of a future lamb to come, the lamb of God. And the lamb had to be slain. Preeminent Jesus is the only way the, the death of the preeminent Jesus is the only way because it's the only way that could work. It's the only way that logically works. Jesus is this mediator between man and God, and he can play that part because he is man and he is God. Jesus, could, I mean, God, the Father cannot send an angel to do this work. An angel cannot represent us. He can't send a prophet, a really righteous man or a woman to do this because of original sin, which is complicated, but let's just pretend he's a, he didn't even have that. He could not make it to the finish line. Let's just pretend we give him the finish line. He makes it all the way to the finish line. One man can pay for one man's sin. He needed to be a man, fully man, but he needed to have the fullness of deity dwelling in him so as to pay the price for all men that would choose to follow him. We have a problem. We have a solution I want us to look now at verse 22 because this is the result of this preeminent salvation. Verse 22. But now, <laughs> don't you love, but now, that's good. I like now. But now <clears throat> he has reconciled you to Christ by his, by, I'm sorry, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through the death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free of accusation. But now, it's all different now. And he's going to present you to the Father as holy. Present, that's a great verb. It's passive. That means, remember what passive means? You receive it. You're not doing the work. You are presented as holy and blameless and without accusations. You are declared that way. The Bible is another way of looking at it from the Bible's point of view. You, you do not um, become righteous. You are stated to be righteous. You are introduced as righteous. And here's, in, in detail, it says without blemish. That means there's nothing wrong with you. That means there's no ill to be found, no flaws. That means you're worthy of being presented then it says holy. Now, holy is not, it's not the same as unblemished. Unblemished means nothing wrong. Righteous means everything right. And this is when he's talking about receiving the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to our account. Okay? And then he says without excuse. This is a legal declaration. Now we're talking about jurisprudence, and we're talking about a legal declaration of absolute innocence. You're completely forgiven. No, it's more like not, you never did anything wrong. And that's why we sang today, how great thou art. How great. Oh, I need you, Lord, I need you. How great thou art. This is what he's doing here. That's the story of the gospel. I don't want us to miss the meaning of this passage. It's easy to become bewildered and even amazed with the details. I want you to see what you're to visualize here. Paul is presenting this in a way that's aesthetic, that's visual, that, 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 that talks to us through intellect, 
but through emotion. It's, it's art. He's showing us something here that's artistic. And I, I don't want you to miss that part. The preeminent Jesus Christ presents you to the Father as holy. Do you see that? Do you see what's happening here? He's, okay, in vision, the grandest expression in your imagination of a, a ballroom or a castle or a throne room. And, and you're walking down this hallway or actually down the center aisle, right? And, and all you can hear is the clacking of your shoes on the marble floor. And you have on your back the hand of Jesus, the preeminent Savior, and it's so bright at the front that you cannot see. And eventually your eyes are able to focus. And it is the Father. And the Son says, I would like to present to you your name. And she is holy. And she is without a blemish. And there are no accusations against her. That's not the whole story. Why does he use this vocabulary? Because the Father says, you're beautiful. There's a presentation with a purpose. There's a presentation with a response. And the Father says, look at, look at you. Look at you. You're pretty. Wow, Jesus changed you. you. You clean up well. Have you ever, in your life with the Lord, envisioned yourself in front of him where he said to you, you're beautiful? And if you haven't, then you're missing the power of the preeminent gospel. There's no salvation like this. Forgive uh, the earthiness of this uh, illustration, but I just felt like, you know, maybe a picture is worth a thousand words. Maybe three is worth 3,000. And so this is, this is what we look like as a dog, right? Alienated enemies in our minds and in our behavior, all we can do is add insult to injury. This is the nature of our souls. And then it says, because of the blood of the cross, of the preeminent son, he has made us new. We are holy, without blemish, without accusation, and that's us. You're pretty. You're beautiful. Says, you know what? That's not it. Because that is a very nice mutt. It, it, I mean, I, the, the dog looks great. You'll take that one home maybe, but a king won't. He takes you from that alley, and he makes you into the fine lady. This is the fine lady, right? This is the winner of the 2016 World Dog Show, the largest dog show in the world. It was in Moscow in 2016. There were 19,295 entrants, 
contestants. Would you, is that what you call a dog, a contestant? This is the most beautiful dog in the world because there were 19,924 other dogs where someone said, I, I think there's a blemish there. Some other dog in second place said, I think I have an accusation against that dog. This dog is holy. That's how he sees us. And that should alter the way it should rearrange all of us, every aspect of our life, right? I mean, how can that not change the way we think, the way we feel, and what we do? If you don't think, if you don't believe that when you're presented to the Holy Father and you are able to be presented, if you don't believe, feel, or live in such a way that uh, he doesn't look at you and say you're beautiful, you're wrong. That's all there is to it. You're wrong. And you have to change what's wrong and believe this passage because it's true. It's right. This is what's real. How does this happen? By the mercy of God? By the love of God? No. There's been no talk of love and mercy today. There's nothing about love and mercy in these passages. I don't see it. It's the motivation, but it's not the reality. What we're talking about today, this gospel, it's about justice. And justice has an obligation. And the obligation is to make sure debts are paid and paid in full. And that's why this passage is about justice. We are looking at words like blood and physical body and death through crucifixion. And do you know why those words are highlighted in this passage? Because that's a different kind of salvation. That's one that says, oh, yes, we absolutely had a problem, and only God could fix it. And yes, he did. He caused justice to pass over us. And friends, we couldn't be more secure in our relationship with God, and it should rearrange every aspect of our value system. And, and the reason we can be secure is because this passage is about passive verbs. This happened to us. This is not because of us. And so our confidence, if, if we're wavering, it's because we're, it's, our confidence is in the wrong tense of a verb. This is the true gospel this is this preeminent gospel brought to us by preeminent Jesus. Here's how, here's, I know it's, it's, it's mind-bending. It's, 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 it's so difficult to believe this. It, there's a part of us that understands this about the very nature of God and his perfection. Here's how Pascal put it. I love this. He says, it is unworthy of God to unite himself with a wretched man. Right. Right. How, how could God... Right? Unite himself, be presented with a wretched man. Man couldn't endure that. You see, God cannot unite himself with a wretched man, but yet it is not unworthy of God to lift man up out of his wretchedness. 
Only God can fix this. And it is not unworthy of God to do that. It is unworthy of God to have that mangrel, alley, flea-bitten munt as a dog on his side or in his lap. That's us, alienated and enemies. But it is not unworthy of God to rescue that dog and transform him into this fine lady. That's what he does. That's the true gospel. That's the real gospel. This is how Paul applies it. This is the last verse. He says, this, this is the gospel. That's what he says. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven in which I, Paul, have become a servant. You know what you do with this? This knowledge, you become a slave to it. You become a servant to it. Some passage says you can be a minister to it. At Grace, you are the ministers to this gospel. This gospel is grotesque in its honesty about how bad we are. And, it's, and it provides a solution, not from us, but a preeminent solution from a preeminent Jesus Christ. It only works with a God-man being willing with mercy and love as his motivation to, to bleed to die this excruciating death so that that blood would somehow miraculously transform us from the inside out. This, this, this part of the gospel, this idea that you could be presented to the Father by the Son and the Father would, said, would say, you are beautiful. This is the part of the gospel that you can reject. This is the part that you could, have, you could have great deals of doubt with. Not reject, but have doubts. This is the part of the gospel that says, this is too good to be true. This cannot be real. This is much too wonderful. Yes, if you view the gospel that way, then you're on target. Now you get it. Now you see the preeminent gospel. And it will take a lifetime, no, two lifetimes, this one and the next, to comprehend what this means. That's, if you have your doubts there, they're in the right place. Who is man that God would care for him? But this is the only way it works. Because if righteousness could be had through good works, then Christ died needlessly. And, and God will not waste the life of his son if it were not absolutely required. That's what justice requires. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But God so loved the world that he sent his preeminent son that whoever would believe in his death and resurrection would not perish but have eternal life. This is the true gospel, that his crucifixion makes us clean and his resurrection gives us presentability to the father who says, you're beautiful. Is that what you believe? If you haven't yet, why not today? Have a passive salvation, salvation of a different kind. And if that's your story, then let's celebrate that today. Let's live in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of this God, this Lord. Good paragraph. Let's pray a, gr a prayer of, of uh, gratitude, shall we? 
Lord, we have so much encouragement from being united in Christ, and we have great comfort from his love, and we are thankful um, beyond even understanding that we might share in a common spirit. Thank you, Jesus, who in the very nature of God did not consider that equality with God, that the fullness of God would dwell in him is something to be used for your own advantage, but rather you made yourself into nothing and you took your, on the very nature of a servant being made like us. And we are forever grateful that you chose to humble yourself and you were obedient to the Father and the obedient to death and not any death, but death on the cross. That you might take our ju judgment, that we might take your righteousness. It was the only way that we could ever be presented to the Father as holy without blemish and without accusations, and we, are, we want to live for you now. We desire that we would obey and continue to live out our salvation with fear and trembling. Forgive us for not comprehending the depth of what you did and the cost and the glory that we have been given. We desire your Spirit would work in us, to will in us, to act in us, to fulfill your purpose in our life. Lord, we commit to trying not to do anything out of selfish ambition or, or vain conceit. We're going to emulate what you're like in your humility. We will value other people above ourselves and look out for their interest. We long for this day. This is the day we live for. That the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And he would say, this was all for the glory of the Father. We can't wait to be there. And all God's people said, amen.